Welcome to At Work in America, sponsored by Paychex. At Work in America digs in behind the headlines and trends to the stories of real people making a difference in the world of work. And now here are your hosts, Steve Bowes and Trish McFarland-Steed. Welcome back to the Outwork in America show. We have a great show today. We are welcoming back our friend, frequent guest, world traveler, Ben Brooks, back to the show. Be coming on in a minute. Trish, before we welcome Ben, let's thank our friends, of course, at Paychex for all their support. Uh, wonderful to work with them for yet another year. They're just doing great work, specifically lately, Trish, around the ERTC tax credits for their uh, customers, right? So like if if many, like I'm sure Pilot was one of these organizations, right? If you manage to sort of stay alive through the pandemic and keep folks on the payroll, right? There's some great programs where you can claim back and get credits back for just doing what you had to do to keep folks on the payroll and get us all through right. the pandemic. And so Paychex really does a masterful job, right? Of helping clients navigate the myriad of forms and processes to do that. So thanks to them for that. Yes. And just really everything, all their resources on their page. I use it frequently, even though I'm no longer a practitioner. So I think it's valuable whether you're a small business, you're an HR leader, you're maybe an HR department, you want to know more about what's going on in the world and the economy. Um, they just have so many resources. So thank you, Paychecks. Yes. Uh, so visit paychecks.com for all of that and much, much more. Uh, all right, Trish, let's get right to it. We're welcoming back to the show Ben Brooks. Ben is the founder and CEO of Pilot, an award-winning employee career development software platform, Trish, that just celebrated its seventh anniversary or birthday or both. I'm not sure if it's an anniversary or birthday. I, I, I literally we'll was in a conversation about this. We'll talk about that. Inspired by his successful CEO and coaching practice, Ben saw an opportunity to democratize executive coaching and empower employees at scale. Ben, welcome back to the show. Coming to us from where? Tell us today from your world travels. From Bozeman, Montana. Beautiful state of Montana. Glad to be here. That is welcome fantastic. I've never been to Montana, I don't believe. Oh, man. I, are you one of those folks, Ben? I bet you are. You're, are you ticking off the states? Steve knows you, you me are too a well. famous traveler. I I um I have an app even where I track countries and states I've been to. So Montana was a new state for me. I grew up in Colorado, and so I born in Texas, grew up in Colorado. I spent many summers in Wyoming, but it was always kind of you know it was very similar you know in feel. So we never made it to Montana, and I've wanted to come here forever. So I only have seven states left after visiting Montana this week. So I'm committed to get to all fifty. I, I may even do every state in Mexico. I'm looking at Canadian provinces and territories. Canada's a little more if you get into the the territories, it's like you know you're a real hearty soul. But yeah. um, but I think I've been to 14 states in Mexico, and there's about 29 I think total. So I'm I'm, I'm working. I like to you know if I haven't been, I like to go. That's sort of my rule. If I haven't been, check it out. I love that. What what has been the most interesting thing that you have either experienced or you know tasted, whatever in uh, Montana? What what's the thing that we should all know? Go to Montana and be sure to do this thing or see this thing. Well, you know, they're famous for, you know, fly fishing and river runs through it, I think, um, certainly uh, put a lot of this on the map and things. But uh, I, I found out, by the way, that FICO of your FICO credit score is headquartered here in Bozeman, Montana. They were in Minneapolis for some years and relocated here in 2016. They're a $1.4 billion revenue company um, you know, and the, the university is here. But um, the cuisine here is actually, if you like Western or, or kind of uh, Mountain West fare, I've gotten to eat elk and bison, pheasant. I had a rattlesnake uh, rabbit sausage wow. and, and some Rocky Mountain oysters with a local beer. Hell yeah. Very there good. we go. I do have a question awesome. on the elk. I've never had elk. What is that similar to, or is it similar to anything that you've tried? Um, some people, I grew up like we, my dad hunted and things. So what people say it's a little bit gamey, but it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a red meat. Um, and so not super dissimilar to like a venison or a deer, um, but definitely a meat that you, you know, have a smaller portion of, and you, uh, want to cook, you know, medium rare, like a lot of game and it's really fresh, but you, you know, and have just the right kind of sauce or glaze or something with it. So, um. Worth checking. I had no idea until I went to Colorado um, how large elk are in person. Oh, yeah. And they're just like wandering around. We, I literally, I think we were coming back from Estes Park. Just a big elk. They're pesky elk that way, those the elk. Park. They don't like to, you know, I mean, stay where you tell them to. Yeah. It oh, yeah. It was 
huge, huge, so tall. Like so, yeah, we think of deer, but they're moose-like in size. They're, they're very much like a moose, yeah, yeah. honestly. It just well, the, I have to tell you, there was, and then we'll get on to the show. But there was a, you know, a big field with like barbed wire fence, you know, pretty tall fence. This thing didn't even jump over; it, it just walked over it, and we were all floored. We're like, that elk <laughs> just walked right over that fence. So yeah, it was very tall. I want to thank everyone uh, for listening to the Prairie Home <laughs> Companion. We'll be back. <laughs> all right. This is great stuff, Ben. So great to see you. Thanks for coming in all the way from Montana. Pilot, seventh birthday slash anniversary. We don't know which, it doesn't matter. Matt, that's congratulations first off, right? From from humble-ish beginnings, right? You Very probably, humble. and a laptop and an idea to seven years later. I'd love for get a little uh, update on what's been happening this last year or so with Pilot. Yeah, we we um we we like to use the term birthday. It kind of has a more personal, fun sense to it, um, and a, a live uh, sense. You know, pilot's doing well. I mean, to your point about humble, I founded the company with my life savings. Uh, you know, that's there's some there's a rule in entrepreneurship. If you haven't put payroll on your credit card, your personal credit card, right, you're not really in the entrepreneur club. And I've done that many a time, um, and certainly humble to your to your point. But we've achieved a lot of great success. Um, we just renamed the supplier of the year for Diageo, the spirits company that sells Johnny Walker and Don Julio and Kettle One, and um, we were named their supplier of the year. And we're working with just a lot of great companies all over the country and all over the world. Um, Nestle's are now our largest customer just at their headquarters recently, um, you know, rolling out uh, their largest program ever. And, you know, it was really touching on the personal side for me because we had a bunch of people who've been in pilot share their experience. And these people are like, hey, I'm, we lived in Dubai and I came to the U.S. to work at, for Nestle and I'm doing this. And out of pilot, you know, I had a breakthrough with my family or I got a promotion or I learned the thing that, you know, whatever, I finally got over my fear to do a particular thing. And one of their executives says, you know, it's in the name, folks, pilot, you know, you're the pilot. Nestle's the plane. You're the pilot. You got to own your career. We're ready for you, et cetera. So it was this beautiful, I got choked up because as much as there's like the business success of like, you know, revenue and contracts and things like that and awards, getting the human impact of seeing kind of the vision that we hoped would be that people, you know, feel powerful at work is actually happening through our six month employee development program. So that that for me is probably the most meaningful thing, you know, bringing our customers together for an offsite and a party and Diageo's headquarters in New York and other things. And just, you know, kind of the experience of the human, the feeling aspect of it is really starting. That's where I think seven years in is really starting to catch um, and giving me a lot of satisfaction. That's fantastic. Yeah. That is wonderful. Ben, thank you so much. Uh, Ben, the uh, one of the things we love to talk to you about, we sort of we we have a cadence with Ben. Ben is so gracious with his time uh, and a great friend of the show. He comes on at the beginning of the year and we sort of try to one of the things we talk about is kind of just getting goal, goal setting, planning for the year, kind of maybe resetting yourself, getting through the holidays and think, well, what am I going to try to get done this year? How do I want to approach this year? And then sort of mid year is about halfway through the year. We, we sort of check in again. I. I'd love for you maybe to share some thoughts and ideas about whether it's you personally, how you do it yourself, or just for all of us to say, hey, what's a good way to kind of reset, if you will, in the middle of the year? And and maybe we didn't get everything done. We hoped we would, or maybe we did, and we need to start some more aspirational goals, you know, for the second part of the year. What, what are some of the things you do or, or you recommend that we all do to kind of reset ourselves as we head into Part two of 2023. Well, it's yeah, it's perfect timing. Um, part of the reason I'm here in Montana is I set a goal to work remote one week a quarter. And, you know, I was in Copenhagen, Denmark in Q1, Montana, Q2. Now I'm thinking ahead to Q3 and Q4, where I might be Seattle is on the list um, based on a few different things. And so, you know, the I was here this week with my friend and fellow business founder, a guy named Ty Walrod, and he lives in Los Angeles. He's expecting his first baby, him and his husband have a baby coming in August. And, you know, we meet every month to talk about our goals and it's sacred time. And we have a Google Doc and we update it. And one of the most important things, Steve, to your point about how do you stay on track or how do you reset, et cetera, is not doing it alone. Going alone you know, I'm a coach, I'm a disciplined person, all these things. It makes a tremendous difference to have even a single person in my life be a stand for me achieving my goals, asking about them, having me, there, there are things that, you know, I wanted to get a new chair for my, uh, my dining or my living room and dining room. It's in New York city. You have, you know, multi-purpose room, you know, there's not, and it sounds like I have this great palatial, you know, thing, but I like one <laughs> proper reading chair and I'm like ready for a new one. And, and it's one of those things I could keep putting it off and I could sort of know what I want this, you know, Herman Miller chair that I want and all these things. And, and because I'm accountable to him and I have a monthly call with him, I got the chair ordered. It's showing up on Monday. 
It's a beautiful green leather. So I'm excited about that. And, and so I think part of it is having that, you know, writing the goals down, you know, Brian Tracy wrote a book goals like 40 years ago. And it was, you know, all the research says, you know, having goals, writing them down and sharing them with others were the three biggest bang for your buck things you can do. It sounds so obvious. And we're talking like a Google doc. I don't have special software, but, but, you know, that monthly check-in keeps me grounded. It got me to take a swimming lesson earlier this year. I haven't taken a swimming lesson since I was nine. And boy, did it make a difference as I'm start looking at that as a new way to like manage my my well-being, you know, or some other things I'm exploring. But the other thing, Steve, I would think is a, a method that's a little bit more advanced is to think about the roles. Oftentimes we get focused when we think of goals in terms of an outcome. Like I'm going to say, oh, I want to um, go to Montana, right? Or I want to, you know, learn how to swim. Fine. But we have these different roles. There's the circle of life or the wheel of life um, uh, framework that you can Google online, where you think about, you know, what are the slices of the pie in your life? You know, so it could be your well-being, your your financials, you know, your house or your household, uh, family, romance, sex, friends, community, spirituality, or faith. And so one of the things to look at is less of let me create goals for every one of those, because you probably don't have capacity to peanut butter, peanut butter it all around or Nutella it all around, if that's your jam. Um, but instead to say, if I had to force rank which roles or which slice I want to be focused on most, it's hard. It's very painful to do this. But I did this this week and I have eight different roles that I defined for myself that I have, you know, like, you know, professional is one of eight. Right. And I put them in the order in which I wanted to focus on them, which then helped me calibrate the the eighth item on the list isn't going to have much in there. I'm not going to set some big audacious goal for the thing that's my eighth area of priority. So it was a great sorting mechanism. So I put in and I kind of calibrate. How do I feel about that? Do I want romance to be further down the list than, you know, being of service to others or my well-being? So I think that's the thing is to map out. What are those segments or slices of your life that matter to you? And then to say for a period of time, because that's could change every quarter. And that's where like life can be dynamic. You know, think about 2020, right? We, what you thought January 1st versus April 1st may have been very different between one quarter. So I think being dynamic, but really starting in a bigger picture from where do I want to focus my energies? And then the last thing I'll say is just be kind to yourself. It's really easy to be like, oh, sh crap, you know. Um, I suck. I said I was going to do this. I was going to read a book a month or I was going to volunteer at the food bank or I was going to blah, 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 blah. Be kind to yourself. Be curious. Right. What got in the way? What didn't work or what did work? But the empathy and the compassion is a really fertile way to move goals forward is to be kind with yourself at the beginning of the process. Does that Steve Trish, does that resonate any of those? You know, it does. I've tried the uh, wheel of life approach. And what I found most surprising when I started doing it, and I, I should do it more often, I think, but what I found most surprising was sometimes in your head, you think you know what you're focused on and where your time is going. But unless you sit down and put it to paper, you really don't necessarily know. And what I found was just some surprising areas where I was spending like work, for example, I was spending way too much time and effort and I was feeling less effective because I was sort of letting some other areas suffer. And when I kind of shifted some time to those areas and not so much focused on work, it actually made my work better because then yes. I was a happier person as I came to work. And as I, you know, and, and I took care of some some sort of personal things I needed to spend time on. But it wasn't until I saw that visually. And you're right. I, I think if you could change and do that, like even quarterly, that would be really nice to sort of to, to be very methodical and, and make a choice of where you're spending your time versus I think yes. a lot of times we just let life happen to us. Yep. And we react to it. So I like the idea of being intentional with that, that approach. So I'm glad you brought that up. Steve, what about you? Yeah, I think it's useful. I, I would probably say me personally have been uh, maybe not as uh, intentional about that sort of thing and really trying to analyze, you know, the different components or the elements that might make up your overall well-being, right? And I mean, I guess I think about them, but probably not that intentionally, which I think would be a good exercise to do, you know, maybe for the second half of the year, kind of compartmentalize, like Ben said, these different roles, right, that you're that you're playing, right? It, it, 
family, friends, work, right? Fitness, wellness, right, et cetera. So I think that's a great idea. I'm going to look that up and, and, and maybe spend some time on that as well as we get into, uh, right before I get into doing, uh, no, I won't talk about, I won't complain about what I've got to do this summer for uh, uh, big work projects, but the, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot uh, to do, but also like, it'd be worthwhile to take the time to be more intentional about kind of what would I like to do? What would I like to prioritize and really look at it that way? I think that'd be super helpful. I've not ever done that, honestly. I was just say, Ben, I'd love to hear your, your ideas around this because I think related to that, we just recorded a show that hasn't aired just yet, but around um, being both a person who might be caring for children, but also being caring for older parents or even grandparents. And sometimes those things come as a shock to your world, right? When, when certain things happen with aging family members and whether or not you're in that, in that frame of mind yet. But I think too, if you're approaching your entire life in a more thoughtful way, um, it, it might help you should something catastrophic happen to a loved one, a friend, a pet, right? Something that's going to now you need to shift attention, maybe knowing um, where you might have better capacity would help too, just in preparation. Have, would you find something like that helpful or? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think if you were to think of your 401k, right, you're probably not all in one stock. You probably have a portfolio, right? You're diversified. So if one stock or mutual fund craters, the other because counterbalance your portfolio. So I think, Trish, to your point, if you have a catastrophic event or have a dependent care thing that surprises you, if you have these other routines and communities and source of connection and support uh, in perspective, it makes a tremendous difference because caregivers often experience a high degree of burnout and can be very other oriented. And we have to sort of take care of ourselves first so we can give love and support uh, to others in that regard. And, you know, it may be a, even around family, to your point, it may be that you might have children, but you may also need to think about your parents. My my uh, friend uh, who's from St. Louis, his, his grandma always used to say that you're uh, once an adult, twice a child. And, you know, as our parents get older, they need more care and direction and support. So maybe even being proactive, talking about their health wishes or where their passwords and bank accounts are, or what do they want to do with, with their monies and things like that, or where they're going to live and get support. Some of that stuff can also, um, much like infrastructure, it's much better to have a plan um, than to not know what people's wishes are, not talk about it. Because, you know, eventually, unfortunately, we're all going to die. Some of us get sick and then die. Some of us just die. But that will happen uh, to all of us, right? We just don't know when or how. Yeah, Ben, that's a great point. And on, honestly, Trish, I'm glad you brought that up. I was thinking the same thing a couple of minutes ago about the show we just recorded on caregiving because uh, one of the other themes in that show as well uh, for folks who maybe have listened to it by now is um, being kind to yourself. And, yes. and sort of giving yourself a pass because mm-hmm. you're going through potentially, right? So much uh, stress and, and difficulty managing your life that, hey, maybe I can't be an A plus, you know, worker today, or I can't be an A plus parent today, but I can be a B and that's just going to have to be good enough today because I've got so many other things I've got to, I've got to handle at the same time. So in giving yourself that space and that freedom to hey, just be a B student for a little while, right. In some component of your life, because otherwise it's impossible to manage everything at that. You know, so many of us are trained to be that hyper go, go, go succeeds, you know, at all costs kind of person. And that's what leads to burnout as well. Yeah, I think that that toxic ambition, right, where we think we need to have A's on every part of our A's on every part of the report card in our life, and, you know, and, and whenever you prioritize, there's a loss, you lose something, right, being oh, as wow. good, but there's also a gain, right, and yeah. so we often resist prioritizing because we feel the loss immediately, whereas the gain we realize later, so the short-term impact is like, oh, I'm not going to you know, um, do whatever my, my rowing league this summer, because mm-hmm. I've got to take care of my mom and get her into assisted living. So you feel the loss right away of not doing rowing. You feel the gain of helping your mom and getting her set up months down the road. I, my gosh, you always say things that just like stop me in my tracks. That's, that's the shows for sure. Um, when you think about maybe whether it's your personal life, your, your family's, you know, personal lives, or even your, your employees or your clients, Ben, you know, one of the things we've talked about in the past is that we, we focus a lot on leaders, 
but we don't focus so much on the 85% uh, of organizations, which is the employees and who might be going through things like this or might be going through different work pressures. Has that come up at all lately? And have you been putting any thought around how we can be better supporting that maybe less supported part of the workforce? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I'm an aviation geek and I call, you know, the namesake of my company is Pilot. And if you were to think about getting on a big plane over to Paris or, you know, Hong Kong or Johannesburg, you know, the, how they lay out the seats is a little how we do talent management, leadership development and organization. There's a couple really big first class or business class <laughs> lie flat beds and there's blankets and there's amenity kits and there's noise canceling headphones and there's big old TVs and there's champagne and caviar. And there's a lot, right? And then right. there's some like premium economy or some extra Allegro seats, a few, a few of those. And then there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of seats in coach where, you know, you get a diet Coke and a sandwich and maybe a little TV. And so, you know, the thing is, is that I, you know, what I've experienced is that the organizations have a very hierarchical view that you got to get the leaders better and you got to get senior management better. And that's the multiplier effect, et cetera. And I don't necessarily disagree wholly with that, but we've tried to do that for 40 some years in HR. And it's, you know, we still have plenty of executives who don't act like leaders and plenty of senior managers, et cetera. So, you know, that's where I think, you know, there's some research on great sports teams, great basketball teams. And what makes great coaches was great players, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't focus as much on the players. We focus just on the coaches, you know, or the executives as the senior managers. And so you've got, you know, on average about 85, 80 to 85% of headcount in an organization on average is an individual contributor. And most, you know, Fortune 1000 companies have no offerings for leadership development or top tier talent management unless you're a people supervisor and often a manager of managers. So we have a structural exclusion. There's big DEI implications to this too, but you're also not really cultivating pipelines and doing these other things that we say we should do. We assess people. They'll get you know their performance reviews or their, or their nine box and the talent management that we don't develop them because we only give stuff to the people sitting up in first class who are kind of the fat cats and they're they they they're over service. They get too much. They don't have enough time for it. They resent it. They've had it a million times. They're super busy and slammed. And you've got people, you know, in coach who are, you know, starving and certainly would like to, you know, have a, a little bit more. And that's where pilot tries to be the upgrade, right? Um, to take a lot of people from coach and upgrade them because we have an affordable, scalable approach. But um, but it's a it's a paradigm we really are, are, are challenged with in a lot of um, HR leadership is this very much, you know, we should only give it to the top and only the select few and they have to be at this sort of tier. I mean, Steve, Trish, have you seen this? I mean, how do you think about this? Because it's an area that we continue to struggle with, even though we have a solution for it. It's the the mindset that we're trying to get over. Yeah, no, I agree. I love the the airplane analogy. I had never considered it that way. I think you're right. I think that you know, we talk a lot about making sure people are engaged or motivated and they're, you know, it's always throwing something at them that, that they probably don't find meaningful because we don't really, there's no blanket approach, right? One, one thing I love about Pilot, and I'd love you to share maybe for anybody who's not familiar with it is, it is such a personal, personalized, individual approach to your own career, right? Mm -hmm. To your own leadership development. And I don't feel like, you know, you should have to feel like your company should force you to get better or force you to do something. You should want to make your career better, right? You should want to learn more, but then you should be given some tools and support from your organization to make that happen. So I'd love to just have you tell a little bit about how Pilot kind of marries those two views together and provides that that attention and that care that employees just haven't been getting. Yeah, I think, look, I think many senior executives we meet with, including in HR and outside, say, gosh, dang it, we need employees to own their careers, right? And you could put that on a bumper sticker and people will go, yeah. it's a great, great rallying cry. It could be a great slogan for a campaign, you know, elect me, you know, I'm going to make employees own their careers. But the reality of like doing that is to your point, Trish, is people need support and resources and you you can't force someone to do that. You can't volunteer them to do that. They have to want it. So you have to make it compelling, not compulsory. But, you know, it's really this vision of, of employee-owned organizations supported. So, so the employee has to own it, but the organization has to create the culture, the tools, the resources. Pilot is one of those kinds of tools. And that's where people get feedback about who they could be from their manager about the future, not the past. Mm -hmm. uh, they get group coaching. We have executives talk about the unwritten rules of work in that organization or industry. And then they also get asked hard questions and reflect. 
But, you know, if Paychex is the sponsor of this episode, right? If Paychex has, you know, a cohort of people using Pilot and they have 25 product managers or engineers or sales reps, you're going to have 25 different versions of what a good career looks like at Paychex, even for people in the same role wow. or at the same level. So that's where there's only so much Paychex could do from a senior top-down perspective because, you know, Trish, if you're just about to adopt a kid, your context is going to be very different than your colleague in a role who wants to work uh, nomadically and, and do remote work, which is going to be very different than someone who's just gotten their kids you know, out of the house and is going to be in, more involved in their personal activities and pursuits. So that's where I think um, an employee experience and career track is highly personal and employees have to figure it out. But it's very difficult to figure out if you're just looking at a jobs board rather than doing right. real reflection and inquiry about who you are and what you want. Yeah, I'd agree then uh, the idea that it's, yeah, it's individually owned, but it's got to be supported by the organization. I do think many organizations have just fallen too heavily back on, oh, employees own their own careers, employees own their own development. And go I can remember a quote a couple of years ago I saw from, it was a CIO, some big, big tech company, right? And they were talking about some technological shift, right? And maybe today would be the shift into generative AI, right? Which is everybody's talking about, but it was, it was something along those lines, right? Some major technological shift was happening in this industry. And the, the, the CIO was asked about, you know, well, how are you, you know, preparing for this shift, right? How are you getting up to speed for XYZ new tools, right? That are going to be needed for this industry. And the CIO's comment was so flippant. It was something along the lines of, well, we'll just you know, the employees just have to figure it out. And if they can't figure it out, we'll go find people who, who know it. We'll just, you know, we'll toss these, we'll, we'll cast those people aside and we'll go find new people who know this new thing, whatever it was. And I'm, I was left to thinking, well, that's the most callous kind of approach there, there could be, right? Like you might as well not have employees. You might as well just hire all your work out on Fiverr or Upwork or, right, just contract yeah. everything out, right? If that's, sure. and some companies, that's their approach, right? That's maybe how they want to run their business. But I think that, maybe we have over the years have gone too far in that imbalance between ownership versus complete and total abdication of, of investing in people. Maybe I'd say that, especially those, that 85% then that you mentioned, yep. that, that vast majority. And that approach is kind of like, I also see, you know, the, the other side of the poll, which is we're going to create career paths for everyone and tell them exactly what their next job is and how long it takes and what they're going to need to do. And they've got two options because if you're in sales, you can be an account executive or an account manager if you're a sales development rep. And we've gone so formulaic and structured that someone going from sales to marketing just breaks the model, right? And mm -hmm. and so either we have the on the one poll, like the CIO, what I call like the tough shit approach, right? Just tough shit, figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. Versus the other end of like, you're in this like, you know, almost like, you know, federal government like system that's very structured mapped. And I think that there's room in between. I mean, the pilot, one of our five values is inventive. We just rolled out refreshed values. And it's sort of like, you know, balancing kind of the art of the possible with like the the the, the smaller picture. And so like what is that gray area where there's a role for the organization, right? Investing in the employee, you know, making things more transparent creating a culture where employees can advocate for themselves, right? Looking at things like pay equity, eliminating bias, you know, um, being more open about, you know, internal opportunities, et cetera, stretch assignments. But there's also that role for the employee because it's not a paternalistic thing where we're just taking care of our little kid. We've got, you know, mm -hmm. capable adults and organizations and people will be as small as you hold them to be. So if we hold them to be little kids, they'll act like little kids. Wow. That's so true. I mean, we can probably, everyone listening can probably think of either your current job or a previous job where that has been the case, right? And that's really, people never feel like they can learn and grow and be more than what they already are if you do that. So, great. Um, I had, I want to shift gears a little bit, Ben, um, while we have you, because, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is around employees or our own individual approaches to whether it's personal or work. I'd love to switch gears and talk a little bit about HR specifically. And we've talked in the past about, you know, the importance of analytics and data for the HR professionals. 
And we've also talked a lot about storytelling and the value of having, you know, um, a way to describe in a meaningful way, the impact of something. So I'd love to just get your thoughts, you know, again, sort of from that mid-year check-in. If I'm an HR professional and I'm really thinking about how to add more value to my organization and have better conversations, more meaningful, impactful conversations, what are some of the things we should be focusing on? Should it be more qualitative? Should it be more quantitative? Where do you stand on that? I think, you know, if you think of uh, role goal context as a way that I bring into coaching, thinking about what's your role? What are the goals of your role and what context does that exist in? So if you're in HR, what part of HR, you know, you know, and what were you brought in to do or hired to do? Are you here to, you know, um, sustain success? Are you here to transform and turn something around that maybe is in free fall? Are you here to make it, you know, better, but in a slower, gradual way? So kind of what's the context? I think is a very important question to ask yourself. Right. And and then the goals that you've been asked to sort of achieve. And then with that, you know, I think there's a, a debate around quantitative and qualitative. And I think HR has always been the kind of high narrative, low numbers. Right. Let me explain this to you. Here's the theory behind it. Here's the best practice. Right. Um, you think of, let's say, finance or maybe sales very much numbers before narrative, right? Our weighted pipeline value is this, right? Our available cash cycle is this, our, you know, our variance to our forecast is that, right? Very sort of numbers. And I think that we brought some of our customers together uh, a month ago in New York City from S&P Global, you know, from Just Works, um, people from uh, Diageo, people from Omnicom and Hearts and Science. And we asked them this very question and sort of interesting because we got sort of, um, uh, perplexing answers, right? People would say data and then they talk about the stories and the emotional, or they'd say the stories, but say, but you better bring the data is, is a part of that. So I think part of it is, I think it's a blend, right? Um, there's something very credible, right? With organization and often business leaders, you know, spreadsheets before slides, right? They want to see the numbers. That's when it kind of gets real. That's when it's like, not just a pitch. It's like, okay, here's the facts. So I think bringing in that quantitative, but really kind of the head and the heart you know, one of our customers brings in employees that have been through pilot to the readout with the senior executives. And they say, let's go through all the charts and the data, the before and after, the satisfaction, the perception of the organization, the intent to stay, the benchmark, the CSAT, numbers, numbers. And then let's hear from Carlos. Carlos, tell us about how long you worked at this organization. Um, Tell us about where you were at the beginning of this program. What was your experience like? And what did you take out? And Carlos was like, well, you know, I actually was considering leaving and I had a job opportunity to leave and I got into this program and I realized I never told my boss what I wanted to do here and I was going to leave and I realized that was sort of a betrayal and so I finally told him and he said I would do anything to keep you and he gave me exactly that and I'm way happier and I make more money and boy I want to you know do this again and I love this experience right so that's like a very sticky Carlos's story is like very memorable but it's built on a foundation or platform of credibility with numbers but I find that HR, you know, will say they want numbers, but then shy away if they don't understand how they're perfectly calculated or if they're not, if they're not a hundred percent, right? You're like, okay, well, this is the sample size was 89% of your population. Like, well, what about that 11%? We're like, well, we, you know, you know, we got, you know, political polls are based on like 750 people sometimes and we're using that as, as big thing. So that's kind of how I'm seeing it. But I would love advice from the two of you about how do you help people read the situation and read the room based on what kind of works in their organization um, and, and toggle between what's the blend? Is it 50-50? Is it 90-10? Is it 100-0? Um, what do you all yeah. think? I think that's a super question, Ben, because I think about something like, say, that example, the Carlos example, right? Went through this coaching program and felt really, really rejuvenated and better aligned, et cetera, et cetera. And it could be it was his decision to remain in that organization was largely due to that experience. It could have also been affected by something else completely outside of it. Maybe there was a new benefit program that got rolled out, or maybe the company went to a hybrid 4-1 versus 3-2 or something, whatever. There none of these things happen in a vacuum, right? When we're talking about people and their experience at work and their their attitudes towards work and their engagement levels. And I think one of the challenges always, right, for HR folks is trying to kind of navigate that correlation causation kinds of arguments and also doing 
hey, we can't, like, these are people, not lab animals, right? And so we can't do perfect A-B testing. We're not we're not trying to determine whether or not, you know, uh, Ozempic is going to work for weight loss totally. versus not. So half the people get Ozempic, half the people don't get, uh, get a placebo, yep. right? And then we measure what happens. We can't do those kinds of experiments, sadly enough, you know, with people, right, in, in organizations. <laughs> so it's difficult to know with certainty. But talking to Carlos, right, you leave that conversation saying, boy, this was a really, really impactful program. It impacted him personally, professionally, his team is now a better team because of it. Our organization is stronger because he's still with us, right? So therefore, it's worth increasing our investment, right? Somewhere, someone's got to be able to say, I don't know with perfect certainty, but I I can tell based on these stories and talking to people, and this is where the true, I think, uh, expertise of HR is needed, right? To say, to pass the data, right? And say, Let's look at the person and how they were impacted, right? I, I'm sure, Trish, you did a lot of this, right, as an HR leader yourself. But I think I worry too much. I guess I'll, I'll I'll stop talking after saying this: that we must, if we can't draw that line, that data line directly to the outcome, and feels. 97.8% confident that was the reason, then we're not willing to invest. And I think you can almost never do that in, in some of these things. Yeah. Totally. I th- I think you're right. I think that the jobs I've had over the years have been much more data focused if I couldn't prove something through data. And often I think the art of being a great human resource professional or a great leader in general is being able to tell that story in such a meaningful way so that sometimes you don't have data. You're having to go a little bit off of gut instinct and being able to make that really nice blend so that you know, uh, I often had jobs where as the head of HR, I reported to a CFO. And of course, we're having a very different approach to maybe how a decision is going to be made. Maybe it's who who's going to be eliminated, right? If you're going through a riff or something. And, you know, they're looking at one set of, of factors, but I knew all of sort of the personal stories that went along with it or who might me, you know, be the most valuable person. I remember probably, oh, somewhere between 12 and 15 years ago, I remember, and I think Ben, you might've been there. Um, we were at a conference in New York city with the conference board for senior leadership. Right. And we were talking about mapping sort of where people's connections are in an organization, because at that time there weren't really tools in most organizations to see all of the many connections that a person might have. And I think that's where we were, were struggling to tell that story as HR leaders at the time was like actually taking a piece of paper out and drawing like, okay, this is, this is Carlos and how many connections does Carlos have and how important is he? And, and it might not be reflected in other data, right? Other metrics that you measure, but he might be the, the most important cog in the entire wheel, right? And if you were to just look at, yeah, maybe his sales have been down this month, but to Steve, your point, Maybe because he's had some other thing going on, right? Or he didn't have a tool he needed or whatever. But so, yeah, I do think, Ben, to get back to sort of the original question, it's I think you have to have a fluidity in when the data is more important in a decision, but when the storytelling aspect is more important, because I do think you need both to make the most informed decision about what you're going to do, regardless of what that is with people. And I think to Steve's point around, you know, this is not phase three FDA clinical trials for uh, diabetes and chronic weight management drug, that sometimes I find that HR puts way too high of a standard on measurement or data. And I think it comes from comp, right, that we certify comp financials and bonus pools and plans that go to the board or get reported through the CFO to the SEC and things. So we've got to get that perfect, right? we got to have the comp part and perfect and the equity part and RSUs and all that stuff. Perfect. But when it comes to, you know, does a learning program or does a DEI initiative or does a recruiting piece of software work, we, we're not really using kind of managerial accounting sort of back of the envelope where every other function in the organization often is. So we're holding ourselves to an unnecessary standard. And to Steve's point, then they we hide the data or don't use it because it's imperfect rather than copy out and say, hey, here's some assumptions or here's benchmarks. You know, here's what we've seen from five other, here's what PwC or, you know, McKinsey Quarterly or all Wyman published in their research. 
and you know we do those things and i think that's so important and also to set the 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 expectations up front of how things are measured and what good looks like because one one of the things one of our customers said is look to our executives all hr stuff is the same they're like oh it's an hr thing so when we need 96% completion on compliance training then it just becomes 96% is what good looks like for talent development programs right and He's like, we're never going to achieve 96% on those. So up front, if you don't say this is different than compliance and here's what we should expect because here's what other customers that this vendor see or here's what the benchmark is or here's what prior programs internally did, that's where we have to sort of get in front of it on the on the data side. But often the thing that you know has people you know getting involved at Pilot, we do this and we're, we're clever. We have these executive fireside chats. And we'll often suggest that you bring in like a CFO or a COO that has budget decision making, you know, on the renewal or the expansion into our program to speak to employees about their careers. And they then have an experiential and emotional component. Pilot is no longer a spreadsheet line item that says it's for this many thousands of dollars. They're like, I know that thing. I did it. I love, we actually have a CFO at one of our organizations who's is he's the he's the brakes not the gas when it comes to money right he's the no yeah. guy and <laughs> and he did one of our fireside chats and he's like i never get recognition i never get to get put put in front of people i'm the finance guy yet i've been here for so long and i know how to get all this stuff done and i know all the players and i'm in all these senior decisions i see what people get paid all of this mm-hmm. so he was delighted and then when the renewal came around because he actually was given an active part to play yeah. he didn't need to see the data because he knew it was enjoyable and effective for him because he knew he had done it experientially, which is far more heart than it is head. Yeah. See, I love that. And I think that proves that a lot of what we do, again, whether you're in HR or just leadership in general, it is a practice. It's sort of like a doctor, right? We think of doctors as being very scientific and they are certainly science-based, right? Mm-hmm. Data-based, but it is a practice. It is more of an art than a true science. And I think that's how working with people, motivating people, um, engaging people. It's absolutely something you practice every day and it's never perfect ever. So working toward a perfection goal, Steve, like Steve, when you were talking about that, yeah, that like that's, you can yeah, see that, why that's, that's not been my sort of hang up with a lot of this yeah. stuff lately, just because especially in large organizations, like it, whether it's coaching, whether it's benefits, whether it's hybrid or flexible work, whether it's, you know, uh, pet insurance or dog-friendly workplace, you name it. There's a lot of things going on in organizations that impact people's experience at work and and, and their happiness at work, their productivity at work, and you know the NPS, all the things we talk about, right? When we're trying to understand how to create good workplaces, and it can be super difficult to draw those direct lines between any one of those individual things and a certain outcome. And it's been said now, now the renewal comes up, right. For any one of those programs, whether it's pet insurance or, you know, free coffee in the break rooms or whatever it might be. And, and trying to make that decision, whether or not it's worth increased or, or, you know, remaining investment. And it's a tough thing. And and that's when the people element comes in, I think. And, and, you know, some, sometimes it's gut feeling, sometimes it's, it's an art and sometimes it's on spending the time to get to know people, right. Yep a little bit more deeply than just what what spreadsheets sell you yeah ben uh we're we've had you for a while i want to throw out one last thing real quick and maybe it's not fair to say real quick but uh, we're recording this in june it's early ish june that's pride month as well and which is exciting and and you but we're in a weird place right now in the u.s for sure right where uh, it's becoming even more difficult for organizations, both HR people, but just organizations writ large and leaders and owners and CEOs like yourself to continue to kind of live your values and and kind of, because there's pressure, right? We're in a cultural weird place, The call it the culture wars, call it whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't know why it's happened, but it seems to be happening. And I just love your just thoughts on, just as an organization, why it's, is it important and why it's important for you to sort of, you and the organization to, I don't know, be, be intentional and be, be uh, declarative about your values and what that means today. I think I really appreciate you bringing it up because we've done some uh, polls and surveys and some webinars around DEI progress 2023 versus 2022. And the vast majority of people felt that their progress was stalling 
not that it was flatlined, but that they were going backwards as an organization. One of the factors is some fatigue or failure to kind of deliver on commitments internally. But to your point, Steve, there's also um, DEI sort of gotten caught up in some sort of culture and political wars. And um, and so you've got certain, you know, um, uh, executives and elected officials who are, you know, eliminating from state universities, DEI offices and spend and things in this very, um, you know, it's it's marginal money. It doesn't make any sort of real big impact, but it's a it's a symbolic thing. And yeah. even now, environmental sustainability and governance, ESG, which is a thing sort of used in investing and looking at stocks and impact. Even ESG has become politicized, which is literally like a, a, a formulaic model and report around, you know, how an organization's impact, you know, kind of and how that well they're run it, that too. And so I think, you know, if you look at the case of like what Target had, where employees were being harassed based upon, um, you know, pride based merchandise in stores and then they pulled it. Um, it was pretty devastating for their employees. You know, the HR executive magazine did some really good reporting on this, um, that their employees were like, hey, like, is this our values? You know, are we kowtowing or, or you know, are we are we explaining that anytime a tiny group of people doesn't like something, they can come in and threaten our business, right? What happens for Black History Month or what happens for St. Patrick's Day or what happens for anything <laughs> that could be out there? I don't, you know, you know, and so I think that's where it's, just really important that organizations, if they're going to make a stand, that you have to be steadfast in the face of that. Doesn't mean you have to, you know, be braveheart about it, you know, and, you know, run up the hill with it. But I think, and that's also where you want to balance, if you're going to make a proclamation or a commitment, is it one you can keep under duress, right? Is it one that if the heat turns up, right? Because it's easy to say, well, we stand for this or this and that. But then when it comes to, we might lose a customer, over this, or we have a senior hire that we might not get, or, or because we're not, you know, savvy enough, or we stand for something that they don't believe in, right? That's where you actually, it's a real stress test of the behaviors. And so I think it's important in this moment to not go hyper aggressive, right? To not, you know, you know, in, in organizations, you know, I we talked to a financial services organization this morning, they said, hey, for pride, you know, a couple of years ago, I bring in a drag queen for a virtual um, celebration and we do kind of a little thing. And there's no way in heck that I'm doing that this year. We were lucky to have our rainbow uh, logo, you know, mm -hmm. and so they're kind of calibrating. But I think for senior executives listening to this, you know, I think it is really one of these things you have to slow down and not play to the news cycle or to one moment or one market um, because employees have long memories um, customers pay less attention than you think. Uh, your employees pay a lot more attention, um, depending on the kind of industry you're in. And they will believe you based upon what you do, not what you say. Yeah, Ben, I think that's really great and, and measured, but also intelligent advice, right? And, and practical as well, too, right? Uh, and, and that's what uh, I was hoping you'd say something like that. Not hoping, but I expected that a little bit from you because I know you've You've thought about this really hard, both as a person, a member yep. of this uh, society, but also a business owner and a leader yourself and, and dealing with these issues for a long time. So I appreciate you addressing it, right? Uh, yeah. and, and talking about that. No, and I appreciate, you know, you bring it up because I think it's one of these things that we play it safe. We don't talk about it. And there's sometimes just it's either one or the other. We don't talk about this at all or we're such, you know, social justice warriors that we're going to burn the place down, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that's not how you get sustainable change. When I worked on Don't Ask, Don't Tell Repeal, that wasn't how it was. It wasn't when we, you know, launched employee resource groups in my consulting firm. You know, you have to be steady. Someone described it, one of my mentors is you want to be like the tide coming in, but not like a tsunami, right? The tide comes in consistently, gradually, and set steadily. And, but the tsunami knocks things and blows and then it goes back out too, right? And so I think that that's where, you know, calibrating, if you are a person that cares about these issues, you know, being steady, but also patient, which can seem sort of paradoxical, right? We want the change or we want it now, right? It's great, you know? Um, and at the same time, also being an ally and standing up for these things when others are in the room or decisions are made or slates of candidates are being considered or vendors are being considered. Um, because we're hearing from organizations around the, 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 you know, the world that supplier diversity is becoming far more important. And they're like, that's where they can say we can measure back to the data part. We can yeah. say 
we support this. It's different. We say we spend $60 million with diverse owned businesses, and that equates to, you know, X percentage of our, our managed spend. We met Truist, head of procurement recently, and he you know, was a diverse uh, supplier, was willing to meet with us. And he said, we benchmark, and I can tell you where JP Morgan's percentage of their spend with diverse suppliers is versus mine. And I'm committed that we're going to be industry leaders around that. So the measurement tied back to his personal commitment as a, as a, as a person of an underrepresented minority uh, demographic, but it kind of brought those two things together. Yeah. And so that's a real the thing right, too. right things, you know? Yeah. We did a show not that long ago, Trish with Logitech, uh, the, the peripherals manufacturer, huge, huge company yeah. all around oh, great, uh, great products. Uh, yeah. diversity in procurement. Right. And we yes. had that there, one of their head of one of their global leaders of procurement came on the show to talk about that. So yeah, uh, I'm going to be listening, that, to, I'm listening to that one. I wrote it down right now. I'm going to get into yeah, that. Yeah, no, it was a really good show. So, we did it a couple Yeah, they were ago. brilliant. We've covered a lot, Ben, as always with you. We appreciate your time, your expertise, your insights, your stories from the road. We look forward to speaking with you again soon. We look forward for the Q3 remote working location for Ben. That's yet right. to be announced as far as I know, but we look forward to that. I feel like um, we should be able to have a poll or something where people could vote. I don't know. You should have a poll. Everyone should get to vote can, where Ben they can, goes. They can, they can chip in either uh, some money and they get more votes like raffle tickets or they uh, maybe can make suggestions. Like if you go here, stay in the teepee and go glamping, which is the thing oh. that I missed. I got to eat outdoors here under by a creek with a, a re restaurant with no walls, but I missed the glamping part, which would have been really cool. So maybe I'll ask for suggestions in advance on tips. Well, I'm going to give you a glamping tip. I have not been there, but a really good friend of the show, Matt Bragstad with a light also uh, owns and or co-owns a glamping business called, uh, I think it's, is it Mike, my, my glamping adventure, I think um, in Tennessee, which I absolutely want to check out. It just opened about a year ago. So I yeah, I, I'm sure Tennessee has probably been checked off your list, but Probably worth it. I'm always up for if I haven't been, I want to check it out. And there's lots of Tennessee I have not seen. So really, well, I will hook you up with Matt Bragstead because I think the two of you would probably just stay up all night talking. Honestly, he's he's amazingly brilliant. So we do HR Evolution reunion at a glamping site. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, I'm down. <laughs> The website is pilot.coach, pilot.coach. We would encourage everyone to go out there, check out what Pilot's up to. Find Ben. Ben's everywhere. You can find him on LinkedIn, Twitter, all the places. Uh, follow him, his adventures, his insights, and more. Ben Brooks, thank you so much once again for being so generous and patient with us. And well, we love having you on the show and can't wait to do it again soon. Thank you so much. Highlight of my Friday. Thanks, guys. Thank all right. You. Great stuff. Trish, thank you. Great stuff. It's, uh, it is a Friday as we record this. Heading into the weekend, I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. And uh, that's it. Thanks to our friends at Paychecks, of course. And thanks to Ben. And uh, we will see everybody next time on the HR Happy Hour show. Go to hrhappyhour.net for all the show archives. Subscribe. Tell a friend. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. And bye for now.